Welcome to the Korea Pod, brought to you by Transition Solutions. Your host for today's episode is our founder and CEO, Mr. Fred Studley. You'll notice in today's episode that Fred is on a phone connection with our guest, Steve Durham. The audio quality isn't typically what we broadcast here at the Korea Pod, but as we went through the conversation, we did find that it was one of the more interesting and insightful conversations we've had with a guest on the Career Pod. Steve will talk about his early career, which starts in a fairly typical fashion as he becomes an HR professional in a number of manufacturing companies. He had a short stint in the restaurant business, and then he leveraged a personal passion and skill set, and he became a licensed maritime captain, uh, running sailing charters up and down the coast of Maine in schooners and clippers, and then also doing deliveries of large yachts across the Atlantic. His insights about the various chapters in his career, what made him successful, how he met and worked with adversity, I think were very instructive, and we believe our listeners will benefit tremendously from hearing this conversation. So please bear with us on the audio quality. This is, however, a very special episode. Thank you very much, and here's Fred. Welcome to Korea Pod. Today we have Steve Durham with us. Steve, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. All right. Well, Steve, uh, you live up in Maine, and uh, I guess you've got a preference for Maine. You've been up there for quite a while now, right? Yeah, about 35 years. Okay. Uh, well, you're not a native 35 years. You've got to actually be born there. Yeah. Uh, well, how about your early part of your life, uh, your education, where you were born, brought up, uh, maybe some of your first jobs, if you could talk a little bit about that. Okay. Yeah, briefly, I was, uh, I'm an Army brat. I was born in Tokyo, Japan, and I uh, was there only a short time, five months, then moved to Georgia there a short time, then moved to Germany for uh, two and a half years and left Germany when I was five. So my first recollection of anything in the United States is Columbia, South Carolina, where my dad was retired from Fort Jackson in Columbia, South Carolina. <clears throat> so, and even after he got out of the service, we moved a lot for his jobs. So I'm basically lived all over the South, except for uh, Mississippi and Tennessee and Kentucky. Other than that, I've lived in every Southern state. If I could interject, uh, Steve, uh, we've talked to quite a few people, and the people that we've talked to that have had a lot of movement in their adolescence years, they do build a certain level of resilience in them and uh, adaptability and flexibility. Do you think that is the case with you, too? Most assuredly. Um, I always looked at a move as an opportunity to uh, fix things that uh, didn't go well for me in the, previously. Um, and my brother was the exact opposite. He needed a place where he could be stationary and not move so much because he didn't make friends as quickly. So it was traumatic for him, but good for me. Was he the older brother or younger brother? Younger, 23 months younger. Yeah, see, that's it, the, the burden of being the younger brother. So anyway, uh, well, how about your early uh, education and where you went to school and then uh, some of your early jobs? Okay. Uh, school, elementary school, I went to three, four different elementary schools in four separate states. Uh, I went to one junior high school 
in North Carolina and uh, high school in North Carolina. And then my sophomore year of high school, I went to a private school in Birmingham, Alabama called Indian Springs. And the reason I went there is I had a good friend when I lived in Alabama when I was younger. His father was a teacher out there and I used to go out and visit. And um, I really liked the school. And after that first year, my sophomore year, I decided I really wanted to come back home to Hickory and be with mom and dad and my brother. So I finished high school in Hickory and then went to North Carolina State, um, where I won the draft lottery during the Vietnam conflict and ended up in four years in the military in the Coast Guard on a polar icebreaker. And when I got out of uh, the military, I went back and finished in NC State uh, with a degree in geology and worked for the USGS for about six months before there was a big layoff. And that was during the time of the first oil crisis where they said there wasn't enough oil to support all the cars that were on the road. And I couldn't find another job in geology and just lucked up with a recruiter that placed me with Wrangler Jeans in um, a training position in human resources. And that's how I ended up in human resources. And um, from I was in human resources for about 13 years, and I went back to school and got a master's degree in, in business. Okay. In your uh, career in HR, um you know, why don't you tell me a little bit about uh, that general career, uh, not specifically the companies, but uh, what kind of uh, natural aptitude did you have in human resources, and then what specialized training did you have to have uh, to get into that uh, uh, position in a, in okay. a kind of engaged way? Well, uh, the natural aptitude, I think, all that moving around when I was younger really helped me with that because I was able to make connections with people rather quickly, uh, establish a good rapport, and people seemed to be able to trust me very soon, which, as you know, is really important in human resources, because you've got a lot of confidential information about a whole lot of people, and they want to be comfortable that that information is secure, and you're not going to blab it to everybody that you meet. So that was really, really good and instrumental in um, that part of human resources. And in college, I was a geology major, but I had a strong, very strong um, proclivity for math. And in calculating, um, you know, statistical variations, uh, populations, and doing affirmative action plans and compensation studies, that sort of thing, that really helped me in that aspect as well. Um, so I kind of had the, the double um, skills, both in handling and talking to people and handling the quantitative stuff that goes with human resources as well. Now, did you have your HR jobs, were they in manufacturing settings primarily? Yeah, I would say other than i got to think about this. Other than one year where I worked in New Hampshire at a place called, uh, well, I won't give you the name, but it was a place that um, 
assisted people with traumatic brain injuries, either through accidents or birth. Uh, that was the only place I ever worked that was not manufacturing. And it was all heavy manufacturing, no light manufacturing. And what did you like about the manufacturing setting? Did it just happen that you ended up in a role after role, or was that a, a, a kind of a, a, a choice or a nice fit for you? Well, it was kind of it, it was kind of both. Um, I ended up in manufacturing because that was my first job, and what I liked about manufacturing was um, the sense of urgency. There was things being made. It wasn't just, you know, shuffling papers from one end of a desk to another and doing financial analysis. It was I'm actually making a product that you could see. And in most cases, it was products that were useful to society as a whole. Uh, for example, my first job was with Wrangler jeans. Obviously, clothing is kind of essential. And then I worked with international paper, obviously paper and wood products, uh, then an industrial air compressor company, uh, an automotive company, uh, Corning Corporation, and the products I worked with at Corning were um, um, the science products division used for medical research. Again, a real benefit to um, humanity as a whole. So most of them, I would say, were beneficial and I just love manufacturing for all the um, intricacies involved with manufacturing that you don't get in other disciplines. Okay, uh, it's always something going on. Right. And you can't fake it in manufacturing, right? I mean, you got to no. get the product out. Uh, no. Some of the people that will be listening uh, may not be that familiar with HR. Why don't you just pick out the, the three uh, biggest responsibilities that you faced as an HR director, uh, VP, or head of the function? What uh, what was your main reason to exist? Uh, I'd say the number one reason was um, supporting the overall goals of the corporation and making sure that you had the personnel trained and ready to assist in the corporation meeting those goals. And, and that breaks down into employee relations, which is what I excelled in more than anything else. I really enjoyed that part of the, the work. And then um, the welfare benefits plans, which are things like the health insurance, long-term disability, 401ks, all that sort of thing. Um, that would be like number two. And number three, I guess, would be probably workplace safety and security. I would say those are the big three to me. Other people would say something else, but those are my big three. Okay. In, in your HR career specifically, because we'll talk about some other steps in your career path, uh, what were the big satisfiers in HR for you? Uh, I always liked seeing people grow and expand their knowledge both with the company and with themselves individually. Um, my biggest turn on was just somebody light up when they accomplished something they didn't think they could accomplish before or understand something they didn't think they could understand. Uh, so kind of the, the training end of it, I guess, but more from the personal um, self-reliance aspect. Okay. 
The flip side of the coin, uh, Steve, has to do with the frustration. We all have frustration in our jobs. Uh, what was the either the most frequent one or the most uh, significant in your HR career, the type of uh, situation you found yourself in? I'd say the most frustrating for me personally, uh, and it's diametrically opposite of what I just said about uh, personal growth, and that would be the case where through no fault of the employee, uh, the company finds itself in a position where it needs to reduce ranks by layoffs or something of that nature. And I always felt that the corporation did not do its job well um, when it needed to lay off good employees. That would be my most frustrating parts in, in any business. Do you think that revolved around favoritism or not even understanding the value that some employees had vis-a-vis -vis others? What was the nature of the frustration? Um, it was the nature of the frustration was that the corporation could, I think, in some cases, in a lot of cases, could have cut expenses somewhere else rather than uh, eliminating employees. There are some cases where you have to eliminate employees. And there's no question about it. Um, but in a lot of cases, that was like the easy thing to do instead of not spend on capital equipment or um, maybe not build that high-rise building to you know, impress customers and vendors, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah, I think that's uh, something that in the HR career you see. In, I think in the last couple decades, uh, an awful lot of knowledge in intellectual capital has walked out the door or actually been invited to leave organizations that you lose and you can't get yeah. it back. Uh, yeah. It's not brick and mortar and, and it's very tough to replace it. Uh, it takes years. Uh, yeah, and that's exactly the case uh, we find ourselves in now uh, over the last 30 years. How much manufacturing has departed the U.S. shores and gone overseas? And I don't think we're ever going to see it back, not like it was. Uh, and that that's a case in point. And how about uh, technology? We'll ask this question about a couple different careers you've had. But uh, in your HR role, uh, did you see uh, the impact of emerging technologies, either in terms of how you did your job or the environment around you? Uh, yes, on both cases. In, in my particular job, I started working for um, Corning in 1983, I think it was, 1983. I think that's right. may have been a year or two before that. And in 1986, I personally brought the first PC into the workplace. And I bought it on my own because I saw what it could do in reference to aiding things like maintaining employee rosters, birth dates, vacation eligibilities, pay, et cetera, et cetera. And I did it all on my own on my own computer. And it wasn't long before the uh, finance department says, whoa, this is pretty slick. And uh, as you well know, the finance department gets pretty much what they want. So they had the second computer and then the third, fourth, fifth followed so shortly thereafter on the manufacturing floor for uh, statistical process control, uh, inventory control, and pretty soon 
years later, you can't run any place without a computer now. And as far as the the um, facilities themselves, he had automation uh, doing more hazardous jobs than employees used to do. And instead of you know the fear that um, automation and computerization would get rid of employees, we actually had to hire more employees to take care of that equipment. Okay. So different kind of skill sets. Yeah. Uh, now let's leave the HR field. We'll have a couple questions that will relate back to it. But uh, you had a relatively brief stint in running restaurants. Uh, along I did. With, with your wife. And, and uh, how did you like that environment? Uh, I liked it. Um, again, it played to one of my strengths, which was, you know, employee relations, human relations. Uh, we had a lot of um, uh, repeat business because people would come in and say, oh, hello, Fred. How's the family? How's college going for the kids? I'd remember that kind of stuff. And people would come in and they just loved it. And uh, it helped grow the business. Um, so that was a real strength. What I didn't like about the restaurant business was the hours. Uh, it's just constant, nonstop um, serious multitasking, which I am not good at. I'm good at doing one thing at a time and not having four people come to me at the same time with serious situations. I was just not good at that. All right. So then the, about uh, how did the call of the sea uh, reach you in, in your last act in your, your well, the, the current act that you're performing in is that of a, a captain or a sailor? Uh, yes. How did how did that evolve? Well, I, at a very early age in North Carolina, I went to a sailing camp called Camp Seagull, and it was on the actually on the Newburn River, but it emptied out into the ocean, and um, I loved it. I'd never been sailing. I'd done canoeing and so, and things when I was really young, but I had never experienced anything like sailing. I learned to sail on a little pram and then went up to a sunfish at that sailing camp and when i came home my father bought me a, a little small sailboat and i sailed on the lakes until i got to be a teenager and got really interested in water skiing so we bought a power boat and my brother and i were avid water skiers so that, then i got a taste for that kind of uh, power and it stayed prone in my life for for years uh, on vacations we'd go sailing I'd go camping, hiking, uh, on weekends, I'd sail with friends, but I never had my own boat until, oh, about 15 years ago, other than when I had the water ski boat when I was a teenager. And, um, so really, if I could just interject, so you have yeah. ownership over the restaurant with your wife and, right? And what was the triggering event? Uh, did you sell the restaurants? And then the question is, what, what am I going to do now? Or did you leave the restaurant before uh, uh, the restaurants were sold? Um, a little bit of both, actually. I actually left the restaurants uh, before they were sold and actually took another job in HR with uh, Smith & Wesson and uh, Six Sour and did that for about four years and... Then went back to the restaurant and helped sell them, close them. And it was at that 
point in my life, I decided I wanted to do something that I really wanted to do, which was sail. And um, I needed sea time because I never thought I'd be doing that professionally. And you have to have documented sea time in order to get certifications. So I started working for Portland Schooner Company, sailing an 80-foot schooner. I did that for three years, and then I worked two years with uh, Maine Sailing Adventures, which was a traditionally rigged cutter. And at that point, I had enough sea time with some other things I was able to document that I could get the licenses I needed to captain a couple of boats in Casco Bay and do some um, long-haul deliveries, transatlantics. Well, why don't we talk a little bit about the requirements uh, in terms of e either experience or uh, exams and licensing uh, if a person wanted, let's say they have a boat and they've got the same level of uh, skill that you had earlier in your life and they wanted to do this, either in an act of retirement or as a, a career option, what are the requirements, just in brief? Well, in brief, um, you, you, have to have, you have to have an active first aid certificate in CPR. You have to have, uh, depending on the license, uh, 360 days of active sea time, and a day is anything more than four hours, and it has to be documented. So if I'm working for Fred Studley on his boat, then he would sign a small service sea form detailing what I did and what size the boat was, and I would keep those records until I had the 360 days. Then you have to take a uh, drug screen. You have to get something called a Twix card, Transportation Workers Identification Certificate. Um, you have to have a medical. And um, you have to take a test, a written test, a five-part written test to test uh, your skills, uh, navigation, general deck safety, uh, rules of the road, that kind of thing. And once that all is done, uh, you're certified as a, as a captain. And it can be, it, and it can be various, um, captain, you know, covers a whole lot of area. You can be a captain of a 25 ton boat, a 50 ton, hundred ton, right on up to unlimited, like those huge tankers and freighters. Do you, do you have a, uh, at home, do you have a, a captain's hat that you wear? Like <laughs> no, I don't. minnow or something like that? No, no I don't. All right. No, well, I that's don't. good. I'm, I'm glad actually to hear that. Uh, so what are the, the key responsibilities when you're sailing, uh, whether it be uh, for a tourist or you've got a delivery? Uh, what are the key responsibilities? Uh, well, the, the first thing is to take care of the boat because if the boat's not being taken care of, the, the crew or guests are in jeopardy. So it's really important that the boat be in, in good shape and have all the proper safety equipment and all the regular routine maintenance and stuff done. And the second thing, obviously, is to keep guests on board and the crew on board. Uh, it's not like in the movies. If you uh, go overboard on a transit like from here to the Caribbean or transatlantic from the Caribbean over to Europe or something, you're not... You're not really looking for a person because you can't see the whole person. The only thing you can see is the top of the head where the life vest is holding them up. So you're basically looking for a coconut in the water. And even on a good day, 
that's difficult to find. Even with the modern electronics where you punch the man overboard button and it gives you your instantaneous latitude and longitude, uh, there's drift and all kind of stuff. Uh, and if you're in any kind of weather at all, you can kiss your butt goodbye because you're not being fouled. Yeah, right. So, uh, so those are the key responsibilities, of course. And uh, how about the satisfaction? I talked to you about the satisfactions in the human resource career that you had. How about the satisfiers in sailing, whether it be in a harbor or going across the Atlantic? Well, if, uh, if they're different, if you're in a harbor, you're still within sight of the land, your cell phone still works, your TV still works, all that stuff. Uh, and there's a lot more going on. There's other boats, there's shoals, there's rocks, there's islands. Uh, there are buoys that you have to watch out for. Um, you have to be, and there's bridges that you go under and on occasions. So you have to have a 360 degree surveillance going all the time. So, um, situationally aware is a term that really applies in the boating industry, even more so than in manufacturing or you know the military situational awareness is really critical so once you get out of the near coastal and you're making a transit in the open ocean um what you have to be cognizant of again is safety uh, because as i said if if you go overboard uh, the chances are you're not going to be found uh not a good scenario so safety is utmost personal recognizance and team recognizance and being a team player and standing watches because you're sailing 24 7 you have a watch schedule that you have to meet everybody chips in with the cooking unless you have a chef on board which does happen occasionally uh you stand the watch you do routine inspections of the boat and you check bilges you check the lighting uh you check engines um you stay pretty busy it, it, seems, it, it seems like it's a hands-on job, obviously. Oh, you know, yeah, and that's another reason I like it. It's hands-on. And once you get offshore, unless you have um, a satellite telephone, you're not talking to anybody, and you're not getting uh, reception on your computer either. Um, and that's the other thing I like about it. You're disconnected, and you're in your own little universe. That's like living in Maine, right? I mean, exactly. Uh, no, I didn't mean that. Please. I didn't. Uh, in terms of the emerging technologies, uh, you know, uh, obviously in sailing you've got access to a lot more technology. And I suspect some of the, the sailing boats that you've delivered, you know, I, I think there's probably an autopilot on it that can uh, sail much of it or maybe these were more classically designed uh, boats. Uh, how about the emerging technologies and how it impacts sailing? Well, that's, that's a really good topic. Um, very recently, like in the last five years, there is a technology called AIS, which stands for Automated Identification System. And it's kind of like radar, but it works for a much longer distance. And you actually show up on a um, chart or a radar screen, and by clicking on that icon, the person that's receiving that information can actually determine where you're going, what your speed is, how many people are on board, what the tonnage of the boat is, 
when you're expected to arrive, all kind of information, and you can't even see the boat. Uh, you can get this information from as far away as 90 miles. Uh, and then obviously you have the radar, and there is autopilot on many boats, even very small private boats. And older technology, you had an automatic pilot of some sort by virtue of something called a wind vane that you could attach to your rudder and would use the prevailing wind to keep the rudder pointed in a, uh, a more or less direct direction. So even old technology was good. Uh, but with the radar and uh, GPS, uh, I'll give you an example. One of the first transatlantics I made other than in the service was about 10 years ago on a boat called the Sincerity. It was a 1939 uh, Italian-built boat. It was built for the Crown Prince of Italy. Um, old technology, wooden boat, but we navigated the entire trip on the captain's iPhone. We had we had backup systems, we had sextant, compass, all that stuff, and GPS, but we did the whole trip on an iPhone from uh, from Rockland, Maine to Antigua, 1,700 miles, yeah. Yeah, and then you have, you know, the usual monitoring systems for the engine room. Is the engine overheating? How many RPMs is it doing? Um, all sorts of things. Backup generators for air conditioning, cook stoves. Like one of the boats I sail on has a sub-zero refrigeration and, um, and stoves. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's uh, not, not the rustic, hardy life that maybe your, your forebears uh, had. Uh, no. Definitely not. And in terms of, uh, clearly this was your choice, meaning you had had more traditional jobs and while you, you had satisfaction in your career, this was a calling and it was the right time and you were in the right place to do it. Now, for others that are interested in a nautical career, I guess there are some downsides uh, to it. I mean, it's somewhat seasonal. You have to be in the right geography, I guess, and... And in fact, there is probably some liability. Uh, can you speak to the career in general? And, and you've talked about some of the pluses. What are some of the, the either frustrations or negatives with this type of uh, career? Well, one of the big minuses you hit on the head is it tends to be seasonal unless you're in a warmer climate where you can uh, boat year-round. And if you really want to do it as a professional, that means probably getting a bigger license and sailing on bigger boats. And uh, the competition for those slots is pretty large because it's a shrinking field, uh, largely because of automation. What used to take 30 or 40 people on one of these big tankers can now be done with 12. Um, so that's, that's a, a consideration. Uh, it can be expensive to get the licenses, depending on how you do it. Uh, they call it coming up to, through the Haas pipe if you're self-taught and you take all the tests yourself. If you go to one of the colleges like Maine Maritime Academy or Massachusetts or the one in New York, uh, it's, you know, it's an expense just like going into any other college. Um, so that's a, a downside. And unless you're on a bigger boat, the pay is not great unless you just uh, happen to, to luck out. Uh, typically, like if you're on a 60-foot boat and the guy's paying you to take it from Portland, Maine down to Antigua, if you're the captain, uh, 
typical kind of paycheck would be like 350 bucks a day for like a 60 foot boat. The bigger the boat, the bigger the pay. And again, you could have, that would be like 10 to 15 days worth of work. And it might be three or four weeks before you got another one. Okay. So if you're relying on it on your sole income, you have to be very good with stretching the nickel. Okay. Uh, how about uh, just some general questions here? Uh, as you look back at your career, uh, any major things that you would have done differently as you just reflect? Um, <clears throat> but it might be even, Steve. Yeah, I can, what, I can what, think what, of... What else might you have done, too, in... in it isn't just, you know, what you would have done in your career. You might have chosen a different career. What, what thoughts do you have on that? Um, two things, I think. I, I, from the time I was six years old, I wanted to be a geologist. Um, I would have, I think, I would have given that a bigger shot. I would have tried harder, maybe to do a little better in school when I was there, uh, and maybe gone to graduate school right after. Um, because the GI Bill would have paid for it. It paid for the rest of my college after I got in, and it paid for my master's degree. Um, but I might have been able to scrimp the nickels and dimes and gotten an advanced degree and therefore had a more secure career in geology. That would be one thing, because I did like it. And the other thing I would have done uh, throughout my career, and you know this because you were my boss once, I didn't have the sense of um, being fully committed to the corporation. I wanted, wanted the corporation to run like I wanted it to run instead of the way my bosses wanted it to run. Um, I thought some things were more important than my bosses did, and therefore uh, my ratings suffered in some cases. Uh, I think I would have been more solicitous of my boss's favor, shall I say. Yeah, that's always a tough uh, trade-off. Uh, I, I had some of that in, in my career, as well as many of the people that are listening. Uh, and, it, and because it's a trade-off, it, it's not a clean decision to make. In some cases, uh, as I reflect, and maybe you reflect, if, if let's say you became a geologist, uh, you probably would have been better being an independent geologist, going into consulting where you could be your own boss, so to speak. And these arguments between, you, you know, yourself would replace the ones that you may have had with bosses in larger, more structured organizations. So I think in general when I talk to people who don't align that well with the large organization, it's just going to be a matter of time and opportunity before they... Uh, may try to do something uh, in a smaller setting or something independent of others. So just a, a thought in that regard. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like I know I did better before Corning purchased the company I was working for, uh, which was called CoStar. Uh, I do much better in a smaller organization than I do in a larger one. Definitely for that reason. For and for another reason, I I like. I thrive on um, new things and variety. And in a larger organization, like even in human resources, you get pigeonholed into either, the, you know, you're the compensation specialist, you're the benefit specialist, you're the employee relations specialist. 
even if you're the vice president, you're a little bit pigeonholed more so than you would be in a smaller organization. How about uh, the role of luck, good or bad, has played in your career? And uh, sometimes people resist this question, and it isn't just good luck or bad luck, it's just being in the right place sometimes to have good luck or bad luck happen. It wasn't in particular anything you did. Uh, anything that comes to mind? Oh, several. Um, I have a very good friend, and his, his motto is, I'd rather be lucky than smart. <laughs> and uh, and uh, that has been true for me in a, in a whole lot of cases. Like, I, I ended up in New England from the South as a result of my then current wife, but ex-wife at this point. She was from Connecticut, and uh, she was brought up on Long Island Sound, and we went up for a visit to visit the in-laws. And as luck would have it, I got invited on a sailboat with my brother-in-law. And on that sailboat was the president of um, Bailey Corporation in Seabrook, New Hampshire. And uh, we were just chatting, as you would in a social situation on the sailboat. And he says, oh, you're in human resources. Well, I have an opening up here in Seabrook at Bailey Corporation. Would you be interested? And I said, no, nah, probably not. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't really want to move. And I was very straightforward with him. And he said, well, if I could be nosy, how much are you making wh where you are now? And I told him, and he says, well, the position I have is double that. I said, when do I start? <laughs> so that's how I ended up in New England. So that was a stroke of luck. And um, I um, worked for that company for about four years. And it was a situation where it was uh, United Auto Workers and it was just one layoff after another. And I just, I was, I was miserable laying people off all the time. And I responded to an ad in the paper for uh, data packaging, which became CoStar, which became Corning. And I was there for about 15 years. And that was just pure luck that I happened to see the paper at that particular point in my life. And, um, it was pure luck that I went to that sailing camp when I was younger, and that stayed with me all these years, and now I'm doing it. I'd say it was a lot of luck. Yeah. And yet, Good luck. I, I think uh, the lesson I take away from that is uh, kind of luck is based on activity. Meaning, yes. Meaning uh, to have luck happen, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. You have to uh, be out there. Warren Buffett met Bill Gates because they both went to a, a, a seminar and they were walking across the quadrangle and they said hello and they started talking and and then we fast forward a decade later and they're fast friends. They've done a lot of good things together and they value their friendship. So good luck, yeah, walking, taking a walk across the quad, that's the good luck, but going to the conference was the activity that made good luck happen. So and yeah. I think the illustrations you had kind of support the uh, same thought. Uh, if you hadn't got into the fields you got into, it would have been geology, I guess. If, if yeah, you... probably. Yeah, probably. Okay. Okay. And um, uh, I'd like to piggyback onto that, and t to anybody that listens to these recordings, the most important thing I can think of to tell people is the more you know, 
the better off you are, and especially in a broader sense of the word. Like, you could specialize in geology or human resources, pick the discipline or the thing that you want to do, and if you just stay there and never get out of your comfort zone in there, you just won't grow, your life won't be as rich, and it's really served me well, and I've been able to do a lot of different things just because of my varied interest. Yeah, well, thanks. That's good perspective for a lot of us, and uh, I think you've been rewarded by a career that's had a first act, a second act, and a third act, and God knows what you're going to do next. But uh, <laughs> I guess if you had to rate your career as a whole, how would you rate it on a 10-point scale? Uh, from a personal satisfaction? Yes. Rating? Well, I'd give it close to a 10. Okay. Yeah, I've been real happy with my life. That's good. And yeah. lastly... Uh, we, we realize that there are stories to be told, just brief ones, about uh, it may have to do with your life, it may have to do with your workplace, or some uh, a, a bit of travel that you had. Do you have uh, a, a story to share that might uh, do one of those? Uh, yeah, there's, there's one that's kind of fun that probably not many people would have experienced. When I was in the service, I was on a polar icebreaker, I think I said that, and my first trip was uh, to McMurdo Station in the Antarctic. And there are um, penguins down there, and in some cases, some of them get pretty big. And we were off the boat, exploring the ice a little bit, and one of my um, fellow mates got a little too close to one of the penguins' uh, babies, and the penguin came up and smacked him in the arm with the flipper and broke his arm. Wow. And we were, we were sitting at a bar in uh, New Zealand for a little R&R during the, that deployment. And there were a couple of nice-looking girls sitting next to us. And one of them looked over at him and said, uh, how'd you break your arm? And he says, well, believe it or not, a penguin broke it. And they immediately got up and walked to the far end of the bar. And I looked at him and I says, in this case, the truth is not going to help us. No, it's not going to help. <laughs> not going to help. And there's only like 5% of the people listening to this that will believe that story. So no, don't, but don't it use is, it, it in any bar for the rest of your life either, okay? <laughs> no, but it is a true story. All right. Well, uh, I've enjoyed this, and I'm sure the listeners have too, Steve. So thank you very much for joining CareerPod. Yeah, you're welcome, and uh, good luck to you. All right. Thanks a lot, Steve. Bye now. Okay. Bye.